As I was growing up, I didn't want to be a pastor. My dad was a pastor, and I saw how public and complicated that work was. I didn't want anything to do with it. But when Believer's Chapel, our church on the West Coast, asked me to come on staff to help out with administration and education ministries, not to be a real pastor, but just a helper on staff, I accepted. I was going to Bible school at the time, and this seemed like the next right step to be taking. Within weeks, the teaching leader, elder of our church, person whose ministry I emulated and wanted to get closer to and watch more closely, ran off with a young woman in the church, single woman, and left his family, his wife and four kids, and all of a sudden we were reeling. Not only were we a young church, but we were a church that put families and strong families at the forefront of our ministry, and this just was a blow to the gut. It was also a blow for me because I had hoped to spend time with this man. I wanted to be like him. Oops, not completely, like him. The other paid staff person, Ed, stepped into Don's place and brought real stability to the preaching, teaching ministry of the church. And uh, things not only survived, but we actually started to thrive as a congregation, drawing over 400 people on a Sunday morning in a pretty tough uh, environment there in Southern California. And it was then that Ed thought that it would be better for him if he wasn't strapped in more of a shared leadership structure that we had at Believer's Chapel. And he went across town and started his, a church of his own took a lot of the people, and this second blow, Believer's Chapel never recovered from. Uh, I stayed in the position on staff, tried to bring others around me, but saw that things were going down in attendance, and after about a year, we decided to close that church down. Christ Church was bigger than Believer's Chapel, but it was tough. We met for the last time with over 100 people, that's bigger than the average church in America. A hundred people were there for our final gathering, but we were so bummed out and grieved and upset about these many blows we'd experienced that we just couldn't see ourselves going on. I tried my best to encourage the church from God's word and just being there with them, but on Tuesday, my best friend came up to me and he said, Paul, why couldn't you cry with us? And I remember thinking then, yeah, why, why couldn't I cry with the church as we shut it all down? Why couldn't I cry with those people? I, I was so busy. I was scrambling to survive and do the best I could with putting in the ground the first church I ever served. And I was so busy wanting to encourage the other people that I wasn't in touch with my own great loss and had not really grieved personally. Paul, why couldn't you cry with us? That question has stayed with me through the years. Last week, Keith Baird did a wonderful job of kicking off this fall series 
about emotionally healthy spirituality, did a masterful job of drawing on 30 years of psychological experience, not only training, but leading a full-service Christian counseling center, and uh, left us with a wonderful sermon. Not recorded in podcasts, but available if you've missed it. There's a manuscript in the church office that you can access. A couple of his main points were that our emotions should match our circumstances, and it's okay to lean into those. Our emotions should match our circumstances, and it's okay to lean into them. You can tell from my story that I've got a problem with this, of letting my emotions match the circumstance, and it's okay to lean into those. I think that still is an issue for me as I wrestle with how do I how do I express my emotions? I can express the circumstances. I can describe them real clearly. Usually I'm on target there, but when my wife says, well, how are you feeling about this? I have a harder time getting to that stuff. You see, emotionally healthy spirituality deals with both sides, both the facts and the feelings, the circumstances and the emotions that should come with them. And I think this text starts to challenge us a bit because I think Saul struggled with the same thing that that Paul struggles with, and that is bringing, bringing these together. I think you ought to know from this text that the Saul we're looking at here, King Saul, is quite different from the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus. He visited us two weeks ago in this same place, but this is a different Different Saul, a thousand years before Christ, Saul is the first king of Israel. And the chapter begins, we could have read the whole chapter. The story is in the whole of the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel. But the chapter begins with God telling Saul through Samuel that he needs to utterly destroy the Amalekites because of their harassing Israel for years For 400 years, they were the gangs, the, the terrorists, the guerrilla warfare specialists of their day. And they just taunted Israel time after time. They did it with not only violence, but with corruption and with idolatry, and God had had enough. Saul defeated them almost completely, but spared the king and some of the animals that seemed worthwhile, some of the best of the flocks and herds. So that's where the text begins, is God stirs Samuel to go back to Saul and tell him, you've done wrong. And so God is saying, Saul has not carried out my commands, in verse 11. But then Saul has a whole different picture. He says, I have carried out the command of the Lord. And we can start to see that there's a a disconnect. Someone's wrong here, and my guess is it's not God. God has the right assessment. Saul's off target. What's going on here? Is he in touch with reality? What's he missing in this? Is 
incomplete obedience really disobedience? God's saying yes. Saul doesn't think it's a big problem. So Samuel wakes him up and says, what's that sound I hear? The, uh, the bleating and lowing. What's going on? And Saul says, oh, that. That's, um, well, the people kept some of the best of the flocks and the herds, and they did it to, um, well, to worship the Lord your God, Samuel. And already you can sense that Saul's digging his hole deeper and deeper. Not only has he disobeyed God, if you notice in passing, not only has he built a monument to himself and his victory, not only has he misjudged his lack of obedience or disobedience, but now he's blaming the people, the soldiers, for what's happened. He's minimizing the whole situation, justifying it as if to say, well, we really had good intent for keeping him. We're going to worship. And now he's even distancing himself from this God character who's pointing the finger at him, saying, well, he's your God, Samuel. He's not even owning his own personal relationship to this guy. You see how he's digging a hole with, with tactics I think many of us are familiar with when God starts to point his finger at us. But Samuel says, and Ellen said it well, stop. Samuel tells Saul, you, you've disobeyed God. He, he made you king of Israel. He gave you a mission to get rid of all the Amalekites. And you've disobeyed him. And Saul comes back with a, no, the same story again. I've not disobeyed God. I've done what he told me to do. I've even done it to the point of we've got animals now for sacrifice to that God. And Samuel tells him clearly it's better to obey than to sacrifice. Far better to be completely obedient than to rationalize your being disobedient in some wrapping of spirituality. Don't do that. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel tells them, God's rejected you as king. And that's the way our reading ends. If we were to go on, the story continues. Saul starts to seem repentant. He says twice in the next few verses, I've sinned. But if you read between the lines, he's more interested in getting past this and uh, not really owning it personally and regretting it, but trying to make it still look good. Samuel, would you come with me? And let's, let's just go on as if nothing's really happened here. But Samuel's not able to do that. You see, all the way through here, Saul's situation is getting more difficult and dire. He's digging a deep hole for himself. That's the circumstance. Maybe you got some hint of emotion, but that's just the facts. Now let's look at the other side of the story. Did you see some emotions in here? We don't even have to guess at them. They're sitting right there on the surface in the text. Look at verse 11. Maybe the word doesn't catch it real well, but when God says, I regret that I made Saul king, that regret is one of deep sorrow, sadness, personal pain. Just like when God regretted in Genesis 6 that he had made humankind and he needed to start all over again. 
It was a sad, sorrowful, deeply painful regret. I had hoped for better, and look what's happened. Oh, hope's dashed. It's that kind of sorrow that God's expressing in these words. There's a tear in his eye. And I might just caution you, if you've ever thought or you hear someone around you thinking that the God of the Old Testament is this stern, fierce judge, and the God of the New Testament is a whole different God who's kind and loving, friends, take them to Genesis 6, 1 Samuel 15, and remind them that God has always had a tear in his eye and is slow to judge, slow to be angry, quick to love. That's always been the way he is but we miss it sometimes. Not only does God have emotions there in verse 11, but so does Samuel. He's angry. But I love what he does. He cries out to the Lord all night. Have you had nights like that? Where you're up all night just sorting things out, crying out to the Lord. It's hard to know all that is behind that. We would just be guessing. But there's clear emotion not only at the beginning of this text, but at the very end of the chapter, verse 35, we read this. Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. You see, this whole story is wrapped up in emotions. But if you notice, it's emotions that God and Samuel have. Where's Saul? Where's Saul in here? It's, it's like I hear God and Samuel crying out like my friend Rob and saying, Saul, why can't you cry with us? Why can't you mourn the brokenness of our nation with us? You know, Saul seems to be bent on keeping up a good positive front. For whatever reason, as the, the leader, he's saying, hey, good morning, Samuel, how you doing? Lord bless you. Everything fine? Yeah, I'm fine too. I, I obeyed the Lord. Oh, you, you don't think so? Well, you're just making a big deal over nothing. Come on, I got most of them, just saved a few. It was for good intent. What? Well, okay, let's say I sin. I'm sorry. But come on, Sam, it's not that big a deal. Let's, let's get back to things as usual. Keeping up the front of a good, happy, still-in-charge leader. Saul misses the whole emotion of the people around him and the situation that the situation requires. I'm going to guess, maybe just a long shot, but I'm going to guess that Paul and Saul aren't the only ones that have a problem with the health of their emotions. I'm going to guess that it's not just Paul and Saul, but it's all y'all. That we're all in this together. That we're all falling short somewhere in being really honest and fully engaged in our spirituality with healthy emotions. So on your insert is a little list. Maybe you've peeked at it already. It comes from the material out of Peter Scazzaro, who you met this morning in the video. It comes out of the second chapter, and he lists the top 10 symptoms 
of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Listen to these and listen with God's voice able to speak to you. Um, don't listen as if you can point to others who, have, who are having problems with this. But look for your own issues. Number one, using God to run from God. This is the idea of being busy about Christian activities and service, and so busy we don't really even face the God who's trying to tell us to take care of something deep. Ignoring the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. Three, dying to the wrong things. The self is complicated. The self is both good and bad. We want to die to the bad self. We don't want to die to the good self. Let's make sure we can distinguish that. Denying the past impact on the present is number four. We'll see in a couple weeks, we're going to have to sometimes go back to go forward. You've, you've heard this principle before. We'll look at it. Number five, dividing our lives into secular and sacred compartments. That way we can kind of put God over here and get on with our lives. Six, doing for God instead of being with God. It's a lot like that first one where we're just active rather than attentive. Seven, spiritualizing away conflict, avoiding it rather than resolving it. Number eight, covering over brokenness, weakness, failure. It's amazing, isn't it, how the Bible doesn't do that? The Bible's honest about the greatest heroes of the faith. Uh, Nothing's held back. Number nine, living without limits. You know, self-care isn't always selfish. And we'll learn to take care of ourselves in order to really live the Christian life well. Number 10 is judging other people's spiritual journey. It's not like mine, so maybe they better change, and I can help them. Uh, That's unhealthy. Maybe you've already spotted one, but I'd like you to take a minute, it's worth a minute here, to look that list over and maybe circle or star or highlight, underline, whatever your practice is, at least one of those for you. Don't put the name of someone else you need to write a letter to. But for you, what's, what's one that you could work on? And then I would encourage you, as we were introduced to that day-by-day book, that you can explore it this week in our, in our readings devotionally and in the, the practice of these prayerful hours. But also Wednesday night, this same list will be looked at. and will give you an opportunity to explore that further. Do you have, do you have one marked? I do. And... Uh, I trust that we can say together this prayer. Would you join me in saying in unison the prayer? O God, I thank you for your grace and mercy in my life. If it were not for you, I would not even be aware of you or my need for your transforming work deep beneath the surface of my life. Lord, give me the courage to be honest and to allow the Holy Spirit's power to invade all who I am below the surface of my iceberg so that Jesus might be formed in me. Lord, help me to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is for me personally. 
In Jesus' name, amen.